السلام عليكم اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد 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 Allahumma salli wa sallim ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Thank you so much. Allahumma salli wa sallim ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik wa an'im ala Habibina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum again. It's very good to be back with you all. I know I've been, uh, I know this has been going on without me, but I've been absent for quite a while, alhamdulillah, so it's a barakah and a blessing to be back here on a Friday night in the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with this beautiful community. I'm going to ask everyone to please, especially if you're in the musallah, let's uh, get focused together inshallah, so we have one conversation. My dear sisters, inshallah. Um, before we get started tonight, we did have a few announcements that uh, we just want to go over quickly. Um, so firstly, tomorrow... Uh, there will be, um, I'm not sure what to call it, it's like an assistance workshop. Um, uh, ordinary citizens have the ability to submit claims to the International Criminal Court. And so um, the Meshit has put together a small clinic uh, for two hours tomorrow from two to four, inshallah, to help anyone who wants to submit their claim to the criminal court. They're asking that you bring your, your laptop with you. And you come to the masjid between 2 to 4, there'll be some light refreshments, and there'll be some instructions on how to do it with people there to help you, inshallah. Um, this is one of the many small things we can do for our brothers and sisters in Gaza. So it's something that you are able to do and interested in. Please uh, come tomorrow to ICPC Patterson between 2 and 4. Uh, again, with your own laptop, if possible. Uh, Arabic translation will be available for those who want to do it and don't speak English very well. Uh, the second thing is we want to remind everyone of uh, the two classes that Sheikh Osama does uh, every single week here. Um, on Sundays at 6, he does the parables of the Qur'an. And at Tuesdays after Isha, he does the fiqh of salah. Um, two very uh, powerful, beneficial classes. If you're not already registered, please do register and begin to join. Get on the WhatsApp groups. Uh, there's a lot, a lot to benefit from, inshallah. Uh, there's also, Sheikh Hussam is going to be doing a one-day intensive on February 18th um, on the beginning of guidance um, here, uh, here in Clifton, inshallah. It's going to be from 12 to 5 on Sunday, February 18th. Um, again, if you're able, if you're here and in town, please register um, online and join us. Um, and then lastly, the Masjid is doing, um, uh, the ICPC youth and the junior girls are doing an ice skating program uh, for ages 7 to 18, this Sunday at Secaucus. It's a beautiful park if you've never been there. It's a very beautiful park. Um, there's a store right, there's a, I forgot the name of it. There's a wonderful burger place right next door that has the Biha burgers as well. So if you go, bring your daughters, bring your way sisters. Back. Huh? Way back. Way back, yes, way back. Um, 
uh, enjoy the ice skating and then have some wonderful burgers with your friends inshallah um, I think that's everything in terms of the announcements today inshallah is a straight AMA um, ask us anything uh, and so uh, as usual we're going to use the Slido the QR code is up on the screen and the number is up there as well so if you go to Slido you should be able to submit your questions you, should, you can also vote up and vote down questions as per usual we'll do our best to get through as many as possible I'm going to start from the top of the list just to make it easier and then I'll start to aggregate if need be and I might overlook some if they're uh, too controversial or too hot to touch inshallah Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Sorry, just one uh, yeah. uh, for the intensive that's coming up uh, if, if we guys if we could just keep the noise levels a little bit down uh, for the intensive that's coming up just to um, add a little more detail it's going to be covering the, the a book called Bidayatul Hidayah. Actually, the beginning of guidance is the name of the book. It's a book written by one of the great scholars of the past, Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. And um, this book has three basic chapters to it. Uh, it goes over acts of obedience, acts of disobedience, and then it goes over the etiquettes of companionship to Allah and companionship to people. Suhbat al-Khaliq wa Suhbat al-Khalq. It's a very beautiful, uh, easy read text. Uh, gives us a lot to think about and reflect on, especially with Ramadan coming and it being the month of transformation. Uh, so join us for that intensive 12 to 5. Uh, there's going to be the, anyone who registers gets the book and you also get lunch as well. Uh, you could find a QR code on the flyer if you want to register. And the flyer is at the front of the masjid or on the masjid's WhatsApp community. Uh, that's all I wanted to add to that, Sidi. Inshallah. Bismillah. Okay. Uh, let the Sheikh get his sip of coffee in. Uh, there are two questions at the top, and they keep competing. Uh, each one switches. So I'm just going to ask the fiqhi one first. Um, our student loans haram in Islam. Ya Rab. Um, MashaAllah. Is that the top? That's the uh, top, top question. We're in the middle of the school year. Didn't I, everyone already apply to the student loans? <laughs> People are retroactively worried about their iman. Alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. Alhamdulillah. Taib. A'udhu al-Nashaytan al Alhamdulillah. Salatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Rasulullah. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa ala. There is a very short answer, and then there is a very detailed answer. And then um, there's, I guess, a little bit of a... Uh, summary in between that I could give you guys. The short answer is the fatwa today uh, is that student loans are not haram. Uh, that's the bottom line. And this is the fatwa of who? Of the major fiqh councils of today, uh, including Amja, the fiqh council of North America. And also you'll find it for other uh, international fiqh councils uh, in Europe uh, as well. Uh, so, the, uh, you know, why is this? The fatwa. Why is this the fatwa? Uh, they say that there is something to consider in, uh, you know, fiqh is based on maqasid, greater objectives. And there is this concept of maslaha and mafsada, uh, and that is benefits and harms that is considered in many of the rulings of sharia. And the prohibition of riba of this kind is what we refer to as haram li ghayrihi. Um, do haram due to other cause. And they say that uh, haram li ghayrih is allowable, something that is haram due to other cause, 
is allowable in cases of needs or necessities. And, um, uh, uh, and again, uh, mashallah, Allahumma barik. Uh, so, and again, why is this haram li ghayri? Something that is haram in it, uh, for other cause is haram because of what it could lead to. Meaning that it in itself is not necessarily a prohibition, but it leads down the road of a prohibition. What is it in itself here? The loan itself uh, leads to a prohibition for us as Muslims, which is riba. And, um, but it in itself is not necessarily riba. Uh, there are conditions for the interest to apply. And just being that with that definition, it makes it haram li ghayri, Haram due to other cause. Now, what's the need that's here? The obvious need is for education. Because without higher education, um, uh, the Muslim community as a whole would be ridden to um, uh, uh, you know, great limitations in terms of its potential growth. And uh, us producing leaders that are competent in, posi in competent positions. So they say a ta'lim itself uh, is the need. And this need is not going to be based on, okay, well, does it, what, what defines this need? Is it if I'm going to be the breadwinner or if I'm going to be using it for my income? No, that's not what it is. The education itself is a need because this higher education opens up opportunities um, and abilities uh, that are essential for living, that are essential for living. The skills that people learn in their colleges um, are very critical. Uh, and very useful. So that's why they, they, this is how they define need. They say is um, uh, uh, They say that which there's clear harm or um, uh, with its absence and there's nothing to substitute for it. Now that's why they caveat this fatwa um, with the following. It is not haram provided you pursue all avenues for grants, you pursue all avenues for riba-free loans, and there is a great, there's some avenues, but they're not, there is a great avenue, but unfortunately the availability is not up to scale yet. Uh, we have an example in an organization called the Continuous Charity that is doing great work in this regard, um, in giving people an opportunity to find uh, access to riba-free student loans, right? So this is, um, this is, these are the two conditions. If you want to take a student loan, exhaust efforts in scholarships and grants. And then try to pursue if there is a qard hasan or a riba-free loan that you could get for your education. If all of this doesn't apply, then feel free to get a student loan. But keep in mind the following. It is your shar'i responsibility to pay off this loan as soon as possible as a top priority that trumps other priorities. Uh, you should not delay paying off the student loan for luxuries of living, uh, for getting a nice brand new car, for going on vacations, for going XYZ and letting the loan drag on for years and years and years because that's going to mean that you're going to pay more and more riba. So it is a top priority to pay this off as soon as possible. Wallahu alam. Barakallahu feek, Shaykhna. Okay, Bismillah.
طيب does forgiving someone mean you lose your right to take their hasanat on judgment day bismillah so i think there there's some caveats here and and the sheikh can of course correct me if i miss if i make a mistake um so if the person who's done something harmful to you has not repented for it and has not made amends for it, and what you mean by forgiving is that you're going to let it go in your heart, you're not going to let it fester and so on, uh, then it is plausible, as far as I understand, that on the Day of Judgment you will still see that person's hasanat, or you might still get that person's hasanat when the accounting is being done. Allah may still come and say, you have a lot of sins, this person owes you, so I'm going to give him some of your sins, or you need, that person has hasanat, and I'm going to give you from those hasanat. If the person, however, makes amends, and corrects the mistake, and you forgive them as a mean, like after they've made amends, then I don't know why you're asking the question. You shouldn't even want that person to lose their hasanat on the Day of Judgment. You should be f- fully have just forgiven them. Khalas, you get the, the benefit and the reward of forgiving them. They get the benefit of making amends. Everyone is happy. So I'm assuming from the question that it's more the first scenario. The person hasn't done anything to make amends. Maybe they're still being harmful to you. And you're deciding to let it go in the sense of like, I'm not going to make an issue of this. I'm still going to be brotherly or sisterly and loving. Then there is room on the Day of Judgment that you will get some of their hasanat. Uh, but if they've made amends, I think uh, you're not even going to want that for them. Allah Do you want to add anything, Shaykh? Yeah, no. Uh, uh, as you said, uh, you know, it will, it, it will definitely, forgiving them is absolutely virtuous and good. There's no way that you're going to get less by forgiving them. Yeah. No, that, you know, that's just so counterintuitive. Allah Azza wa Jal in so many ayat of the Qur'an, you know, instructs us to be of those who hasten to forgive. And in fact, the greatest testament to this is Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu being told, Forgive and overlook the mistakes of others. Don't you want Allah to forgive you? So don't even think of this frame of mind whatsoever. You will not get less. Rather, you will get more. And this is a certainty. If you actually take a, a greater step to benevolence by forgiving those who've wronged you. Allah I will. The Sheikh inspired something, uh, a thought. And I, again, I don't know who's asking these questions. They're all anonymous. So no one take this as a comment on them. I do worry a little bit about the psychology of the question, only because, uh, so it's possible that you're just very hurt, which happens. When we get very, very hurt, we're very angry. I've had people in my life who've uh, uh, taken money out of my pocket, and at times it's been very hurtful, like meaning it like materially put me in a difficult spot, and the anger that I felt in my heart, I kind of like, I made, like, like, yeah, Allah, I want on the day of judgment to get this back from them. But, ultimately, eventually, that feeling dissipates. And it dissipates not because I think that person is any better of a person. It dissipates because my primary concern is myself. It's very plausible with all the sins that I've committed on the Day of Judgment, people are going to be taking stuff from me. It's not like I live a perfect life either. I'm sure I wrong people from time to time. I'm sure I get annoying to people from time to time. I'm sure I've done my own sins. I don't know if I'll be in the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so the bigger concern that we should all have is when I meet Allah... Have I met him in a state where my heart is in a state of salam and purity and peace? Or am I meeting him in a state where my heart is blackened? Have I met him with good deeds that will allow me to enter the doorway of his mercy? Or have I met him in a station where his mercy will be kept from me? May Allah make us from those who 
are encompassed by his mercy on that day, inshallah. Okay, number three. My parents are saying no to me marrying a convert, and I'm obeying them, though I would really like to marry him, and he is a good Muslim. Okay, there's no official question, but I think um, the sister here is just asking for general counsel. Um, I'll start by saying something, and then if uh, you have something to add, CDZ, please do add it. Look, um, there are, you know, there are di two different discussions that I would have in answering this type of question. One of these discussions is with the parents, and another discussion is with the one who's asking it. Uh, in, this, in this case, it appears it's a sister. Um, uh, you know, since the one who's asking is a sister, my response to her would be, look, um, we have to navigate imperfect realities with our families. And this is something that we need to come to terms with. Uh, we can wish life was this ideal experience, all we want. But Allah Azza wa did not design this dunya to be ideal. Uh, this dunya, you know, we um, as human beings have all different types of things that influence our understandings, our upbringings, our cultures, uh, our interactions with others. And you'll find that we all have something that is far less than ideal. We have misconceptions that come into our minds. We, uh, we function inappropriately sometimes. That, that applies to children just as it applies to parents. You know, we're not perfect. Uh, uh, you know, but with that being said, um, uh, the idea behind marriage is something that needs certain components to come together in order for it to have the opportunity to be successful. And the more obstacles that are laid forth in the path of a person's marriage, the greater likelihood that that marriage will fail. And this is a reality of dunya that we see unfold in our eyes. It's a, it's a very um, inadvisable thing for someone to venture into marriage when there is a lot of stress on the families, either on one of them or both of them, in terms of their approval and acceptance of a situation. Now, of course, sometimes you might be dealing with something that is very, a very big test. Um, maybe perhaps uh, uh, unreasonable parties, whether they're your parents or otherwise. Um, and and, this, and this, this, uh, um, this unreasonable nature might, might cause difficulties for you. Still, we need to negotiate that reality. Um, I, I cannot give you a blanket answer. It's, we're not talking about ideals and rights and wrongs here. We're talking about something that's either going to make your life more difficult or easier. Uh, something that's going to make your success in this marriage more likely or less likely. Right? That's the type of conversation I would have with the questioner. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that I just need to agree uh, with everything that is suggested to me and not uh, give any pushback or any contention? No, that's not what it means. But perhaps you need to choose your battles and make an assessment. How big of a struggle is this particular situation going to be? Now the person questioning asked about marrying a convert. Very often it's about other things as well. You'll find, uh, you'll find endless circumstances that may come up. Like parents might have an issue with the culture, with the education, um, nice. with the appearance, with the what? The race. 
with the race that comes up. All of these things are possibilities. With the, with the town, come in, right? Uh, with the family in the town, come in, right? You have a certain last name, and you have all different kinds of things that um, all contribute to making people's lives difficult. And it's unfortunate. Life's not difficult. People make it difficult. It's a reality. But again, we're not talking about principles here. I need, to, I, need to feel, I need to feel this path out and see how difficult it will be. Uh, love is something that's cultivated. It's not th- this whole fairy tale thing of love at first sight is in Disney. That's where it is. It's in Disney. Feeling a spark, that's for the Disney characters on TV. They are the ones who feel sparks when they see someone. Love is cultivated. If a path to building a relationship with person X is very difficult, then Allah Azza wa Jal will give you other opportunities that are perhaps at a halfway point between what you want and what your parents want. And that's what I would advise in this regard. I don't know if you have anything to add, Sidi. Um, so yeah, two things, inshallah, bismillah. Number one, uh, dear sister, I, I applaud you. I think you're doing the right thing uh, by uh, obeying your parents in this regard. And I think it will bring the barakah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, that's not to say that I don't know what your parents' argument is. It's very possible that they have a good argument. The way you presented the question is that they just are, you know, bigoted against converts. I don't know if that's the case or not. But regardless, even if that is the case, you're doing the right thing by listening <coughs> and trying to stick with your parents and trying to find a doorway that will please them and please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The one thing I will warn against, though, and this is my second point, um, we're living in an age where uh, connectivity is very easy. And connectivity happens uh, these days between uh, young men and young women to degrees that uh, in my day, and I'm, you know, I'm not, that, I mean, I'm only 40, I'm not that old. In my day, the way you guys speak to each other would be considered a serious wrong. Like it's something we would have hidden from our parents. Like if I was doing what you guys do, I would actually actively hide it. The amount of young people that I know are very open in people's DMs. Like they're very open with me that they're in people's DMs, in each other's DMs. It's very weird to me. But it's very common it seems these days. We text each other back and forth. We DM each other on different platforms. There are all these different ways to get in touch. So I, my, my warning to my dear sister is do not engage this brother any more than you would. Like there, there should be a reason why if you're going to engage him. If you have some project for school and by God's qadr, you happen to be on the same project, okay. Don't fish for reasons to speak to him. Don't connect. And here's why I'm giving this warning. I have seen it so many times. The question we normally get is, I love person X. They're the only one for me, but my parents are saying no. How can I get past this? I don't want you to end up in that scenario. You've already taken the right step of saying, my parents have said no, I'm going to obey. Don't now create a problem for yourself by continuously connecting with this brother. The second thing then is, do not romanticize this brother in your mind. I'm sure he is a good brother. Inshallah, he's a wonderful brother. Don't make him into something more than just that. You don't know him. He's not the perfect guy for you. He's not the only guy for you. And this isn't just to women. Men do this all the time too. I get that statement from guys all the time. She's the only one for me. Until they're married and he finds out all the warts and he's like, actually, she wasn't the one for me. Someone else has to be the only one for me. So don't overdo it with this guy. You've, you've accepted Allah's qadr that your parents didn't want it. Alhamdulillah. 
Pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens another doorway and He will inshaAllah. Inshaallah He will. And if your parents are being unreasonable and bigoted, try to find ways to open the conversation with them that has nothing to do with this specific person or another specific person. When a specific person is in mind, it's far harder to have the conversation than starting the conversation between you and your parents at a stage where no one's in mind, where you're just trying to set uh, parameters and expectations. Anything you want to add, Shafi? Uh, just one yeah. very or quick correction. thing. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Everything you said is on point, Sheikh. Um, uh, but one thing I would add uh, to what Sidi Zaid was saying is, uh, brothers and sisters, please, please don't build a relationship before you confirm that a relationship is viable. This is a flagrant mistake that we see recurrent happening. And what do I mean exactly? That I would allow an interaction to drag on for months on end between, uh, uh, per, between me and another individual before I actually verify that everything's in place to make this even go anywhere. Uh, and uh, there, I've heard too many stories like this this happens sometimes from brothers and it happens sometimes from sisters. That I would engage in some type of interaction and conversation for months and, relation, and emotions will build. And then I finally decide to open up to my parents about it and then I find them shoot it down. It's very irresponsible to do this. It's very hurtful to do this, to uh, drag someone along with you for months on end and then to shut it down because the very first factor that's needed for it to succeed is not even in place, and I was too irresponsible to verify that with my parents to begin with. That's just something I wanted to add to that. Okay. Yeah. Bismillah. Uh, is it haram to text someone of the opposite gender with true intentions of getting to know each other for marriage and keeping it strictly halal? <laughs> the question's funny because you're asking something's haram why you keep it halal, but I know what you mean. I, I, we, can, we can let it go. I, I, I'll start with you first, Sheikhi, because it's a um, haram thing, so I'll, I'll go with Look, you I'll first. just say something yeah. brief to this. Yeah. Um, uh, it, we have something in Islamic law called Sadd al-Dhara'i'r. Sadd al-Dhara'i'r is the prohibition of means, meaning that this path is going to lead off of a cliff, so I'm going to tell you it's haram for you to walk down this path because it's going to lead to um, your death, you know, by your own doing. So this is what we call Sadd al-Dhara'i'r. Uh, it, it's applied in many different circumstances in the ahkam shar'iyah. Now, uh, what I would caution this person is, I'm not going to give you a clear halal or haram because that's going to be variable based on what you do with it, uh, your circumstance. However, however, I will tell you, a general rule of thumb and a good idea is to put between you and said person an intermediary, to have a third party uh, to keep some type of level of seriousness. You should not feel the freedom to text or call someone who is a stranger to you at any time that you would like for the purpose of... That should not be the case. If I want to be responsible and it's all about finding compatibility, I'm going to find ways to verify this with a third person's knowledge of the situation. Now, either you make it a three-way chat or... Whenever you meet, you never meet, even in a public setting, in isolation, right? That there's a third person there. It makes you serious, it makes the other person serious. It makes the conversation serious. It's, you know, it, well, how am I supposed to do that? You really want me to talk to someone about personal things uh, with a stranger in my presence? The answer is, the person you're addressing those personal things is a stranger too. Don't forget that. Uh, well, that's how I would say to that. Allah <laughs> 
ان شاء الله بسم الله I don't know that I would say anything more than that. Very thorough. Um, okay. Do you get hasanat for forgiving? Does forgiving give you more hasanat than you would get from a person you did not forgive? Okay. Uh, so the Sheikh already kind of answered this. Yes, you get a lot of hasanat for forgiving. Um, and it's a very virtuous thing. It's something Allah SWT reproaches Abu Bakr anhu in the Quran for not forgiving by saying it's unbecoming of someone of your stature not to forgive. Meaning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is setting, if you want to be a Siddiq, like Abu Bakr, part of the understanding of Allah is a person who is a Siddiq is a person who forgives and overlooks. Because, Allahu fi'aun al-abd, ma kan al-abdi fi'aun akhi. Allah is in the, uh, Allah will be with you the way you are with your brother or sister. And so if you want Allah to be merciful or forgiving with you, and how often do you do wrong against the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How often do you sin against the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And we always want Allah to be forgiving to us, even though we sin over and over and over and over again. And so one of the ways to have Allah be that forgiving with you and I, is that we are forgiving to other people. But here's the other thing about the question. I don't know, like, this is a weird obsession. This is a weird, it's the second question we get. It's a follow-up to the first question. It's a little bit of a weird obsession. If you are forgiving the person because they're seeking forgiveness, there is no need for this question. So what you're really asking about is, a person is wronging me, do I forgive? If a person, and I'm saying this to make this clear, if a person is seeking your forgiveness, yes, forgive them. Because if they have tried to do right and you have not forgiven them, your rights to earn their hasanat may have already be taken away from you. So if you think by saying, no, I'm not going to forgive you, like the person stole money from you, and they come and try to give it back, and you say, no, I don't want it back because I want it on the day of judgment, your right to actually take that money is probably gone. So if you're just trying to sort of play a game here, it's not going to work. If a person backbit you and is coming to ask your forgiveness, you saying, no, I'm not going to forgive you, is not going to necessarily earn you that right on the day of judgment. This person has tried to make it right. And so trying to insist on this mechanism of hasanat is a very sadistic way. Like it's, it's very unbecoming. You're seeking the mercy of Allah by being unmerciful. No, the way to seek the mercy of Allah is to be merciful. The way to see the, seek the mercy of Allah is to be forgiving. The way to be loved by Allah is to be loving. The way to seek the benevolence of Allah is to be benevolent with others. So please, like this, this insistence on this being like a transactional thing is wrong. At the end of the day, that, that we actually have this ahadith, by the way. We have these ahadith. There's a hadith, I've mentioned it before in these AMAs, of a man who on the day of judgment, or a woman, I don't, Allah doesn't specify the gender specifically in the hadith. A person will come on the day of judgment, and they will be left with nothing but one hasana, and a mountain of sayyat. And there will be another person who, their hasanat and their sayyat are equal. And so the person with the equal weights will go to the man with the one hasana or a woman with the one hasana and say, look, like, you're going to Jahannam anyway. Give me the hasana so I can get into Jannah. And the man or the woman with the one hasana says, you know what, you're right, take it. What do I, mean? what do I need it for? And Allah sees that act and says, I am more, my mercy outweighs yours. It is more befitting that I be more merciful than you. So both of you into Jannah together. Right, so do not get hung up on the transactional part of this. 
that person's hasanat, your sayyat. At the end of the day, what we really want is to earn Allah's mercy on that day. We want Allah to be pleased with us. We want Him to love us. The way to do that is that we cultivate a personality that mimics the names and the attributes of Allah to the extent that we can. Allah is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. We want to be Rahmanun Ar-Rahim. Allah is Ghafoor. We want to be forgiving to people. Allah is Al-Afu. We want to be pardoning with people. Allah is generous. We want to be generous with people because that's what's going to earn us these names and attributes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't know if you want to add anything. No, that's good. MashaAllah. Bismillah. Uh, what can the mosque do to bring single people together in a halal way in terms of matrimony? Okay, Bismillah. Um, Shaykh, if you want to talk about um, Bismillah. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, there's already a program that's ongoing, which is the ICPC matrimonials. Uh, if you never heard about it before, uh, you could see uh, more details on it on the website, inshallah. And you could fill out the application for it through, um, through the office. And basically what they do is uh, they have a database of people who are registered in it. And if they see people who uh, seem to match in terms of their expectations, their objectives, their goals, their, um, where they are at in their life, then they connect them with each other and allow them uh, the opportunity to interact with each other. Uh, so that's what the masjid's been doing. And um, matches have been made uh, through the masjid in this regard. I know it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a monumentous task. So much needs to be put in uh, t you know, to really um, change the dynamic in our community uh, for the struggles with marriage. There are a lot of struggles, but that's one of the avenues that ICPC is doing uh, for that. And we ask Allah Azza wa to make it easy for every person who's looking for marriage to find the righteous spouse, inshallah. Allahumma ameen. Um. So I was looking for a fly. There is a program coming up soon. I think, I think, if I remember correctly, it was out of the Mass Center in Central Jersey. Um, and I'm sure you can find, I don't know if ICPC is planning to do these type of events, but I'm sure you can find other masajid in the area who do it. There are masajid and other organizations that put out like um, ice cream socials. And uh, I think this one specifically was like a game night social for single men and women looking to get married. These programs are a healthy step in the right direction because a part of the challenge quite often, alhamdulillah, because the community has grown so much and unfortunately because society has gotten very closed off from one another, we don't have the same connections that we used to have. So it used to be a lot easier when the community was a bit smaller or when the community was a lot more social where families would know other families and you can kind of connect to each other. And, you know, I know everyone hates arranged marriages now, but there was some level of barakah in that process. Your parents knew people, they knew good people. Your aunts knew people, your uncles knew people. That's not as easy anymore. And so there's a need to sort of create social environments where people can at least be introduced to one another. It's a little awkward, but if you all get past the awkwardness, you're all there for the same reason. There's some goodness there. So I think, I think there is one either this weekend or the next weekend coming up. I believe it's out of the Mass Center in North Brunswick. I could be wrong. Um, uh, but you, if you do a quick Google search for social events, matrimonial social events in New Jersey, I'm sure you'll find quite a few misogynist organizations that are doing them. I would go to as many as possible. You never know where Allah SWT has written your qadr. You never know what connection would lead to... Um, the person that Allah Taala has written for you to marry. Uh, Wallahu ta'ala I don't know if you want to say anything. Sure. No. Okay. 
Um, okay, uh, Bismillah. I heard that we are supposed to make sujood during certain areas of the Quran. How do we know when to make sujood? May Allah reward you both. Barakallah feekum for the dua. May Allah reward all of you as well. Um, so there is a, a small symbol. Um, it's escaping me now, Sheikh. You, you take this one. Escaping me the symbol. Uh, the oh. places where you do sajda in yes, the Quran. Yes, the symbol for the sajda. Yes, so the, basically uh, there are certain verses that when you recite them, uh, it is recommended for you to do a sajda. Uh, and uh, the, the, this, this recommendation applies whether you're in salah or outside of salah. Um, and uh, these, uh, th there are approximately 14 locations throughout the Qur'an. There are a difference of opinion among the scholars about some of these, by the way, uh, just so you know. But the Mus'haf of Medina that we have, um, uh, that you know, people often reference, list out uh, these sajdat. Um, and th they're throughout the entire Qur'an. There's some Juz'amma and there's uh, Surah Sa'd. That was one of the ones that there's difference opinion about. There's Surah Al-Hajj as well. And the reason, and there's Surah Fussilat. The reason why there are these sajdas in the Quran is because there's some reference in the ayah to the idea of prostration to Allah Azza wa Jal. Um, so th that's why we have these sajdas. And another one's in Surah Al-Naml. <coughs> so you'll find them in 14 locations throughout the Quran. And... Um, and uh, it's not required to do sajda, it's recommended. If you will do sajda, note the following. If you're doing it outside of salah, do you need to be in proper dress to do the sajda? Answer, of course. Of course, you need to be covering your aura. Uh, and this especially applies to um, uh, sisters. Uh, you know, you need to be covering your aura when you're going to do the sajda. That's no doubt. Do you need to have wudu according to the four madahib, four schools? You need to have wudu when you do the sajda. Is there an opinion that says you don't need to have wudu? Yes, there is. It's kharij al-madahil arba'a. It's the opinion of Imam ibn Taymiyyah. Uh, he says you don't need to have wudu to do the sajda. But the four schools state you need to have wudu to do the sajda. If you don't have wudu, then what? You say what we call al-baqiyat al-salihat. Subhanallah, alhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar. That's the idea behind the sajdas. Yeah. Sheikh, I can't remember what the symbol looks like. One, it looks like a like a mihrab, like a riwaq almost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like a. Uh, yeah. There's a sajda in Surah Sa'd that I don't do it. In Surah Sa'd, وَظَنَّ دَاوُدُ أَنَّمَا فَتَنَّاهُ فَاسْتَغْفَرَ رَبَّهُ وَخَرَّ رَاكِعًا وَأَنَابٍ This sajda in Surah Sa'd, according to the Shafi'i school, they say that it's sajda shukr, not sajda tilawa. Uh, and the, the reason why is because the Prophet said, Sajadaha Dawudu Tawbatan wa Nasjuduha Shukran. Dawood did this sajda out of tawbah, and we do it out of seeking forgiveness. If it is sajda, we do it out of gratitude. Uh, if it is sajda shukr, then it should not be done during salah. That's why. Uh, but outside of salah, it can be done, no problem. Yeah. So the question was, how do we know when you're reciting the Quran, there is that symbol that looks like um, a riwaq or a mihrab, kind of like the uh, the 
classic Islamic architecture. Um, uh, the brother has it up on his phone. There you um, go. Yeah. So that, that symbol, when you're reciting, that symbol is a sign that at the end of this ayah you should recite. Um, uh, there's also another symbol that uh, if it's the underlining of the specific word in the ayah yeah, preceding it, that lets yeah, you know exactly. that's why you're going to yeah. uh, do the sajda. Okay. Uh, Bismillah. Question for Sheikh Osama. Uh, okay, inshallah. Uh, some of these are highly voted up. So we'll do sure. the high voted ones and then we'll take questions from the audience uh, that are not on Slido if needed. Uh, question for Sheikh Osama. Can I not follow a specific madhab and just follow the most authentic opinion for things? If so, how do I find the most authentic opinion? <laughs> Allahu Akbar. Um, I'm laughing because you, you answered your own question in the question, mashallah. This is a scholar in the making. Bismillah. So, uh, look, uh, this idea of following the most authentic opinion on things uh, is a complex issue because you will find that Islamic law by design, Sharia, is not clear-cut, qat'i, uh, in most of its teachings. Meaning that you'll find that most of al-ahkam al-shari'iyah are subject to interpretation. That's why they say fiqh as a science, fiqh, al-fiqhu min bab al-dhunun. What does that mean? Meaning that it's probable in nature. Uh, it, you know, they're not, they're not qat'iyat. What's, what's qat'i? What are things that are clear-cut? Those are the foundations of iman. You will not find two Muslims differing, um, you know, uh, one madhab says there's a day of judgment and another one says there isn't. You know, if they don't believe in a day of judgment, they're not Muslim. That's the bottom line. These are the foundations of the religion. But most of the teachings of the religion have this diversity of opinion. Why do they have it? There's, this is a science in itself. Adab al-ikhtilaf and realizing why do scholars differ. There are things in Islam that Allah Azza wa chose to leave to the understandings of people. That there wasn't something set in stone, and there was a big, there was a lot of mercy in this for us as an ummah. Because if everything was set in stone, we would find difficulty in complying in certain situations with the opinion that is agreed upon. Right? There are things that there is mahal ijma, an area of consensus, but they are few. Most of the teachings in Islam are not areas of consensus, and that's okay. Uh, as, as we learn from the hadith, ikhtilafu ummati. Rahma, the difference of opinion among my ummah is a rahma. This hadith is, as they say, it's it's a weak hadith in terms of narration, uh, but um, it, it is talaqatul ummatu bil qabul. Its meaning is absolutely authentic and accepted. So, what you will find an issue with is finding this most authentic opinion. As you say, uh, you will find that the Shafi'i school. Uh, believes the most authentic is this. And the Hanafi says the most authentic is that. And the Maliki says the most authentic is that. And all of them have their hujjah and have their proof and their evidence. Uh, and, you know, uh, th- th- there's, a, there's an approach to fiqh that is very destructive. This v- approach to fiqh is giving a person who has absolutely no expertise whatsoever uh, uh, the, the, the idea and the ability to say that Imam Shafi'i was wrong. Imam Abu Hanifa didn't know anything about hadith. Imam Kadha This, all of this stuff, it's, it's coming from a very destructive mindset that does not understand what difference of opinion in fiqh is about. Right. So my answer to this questioner is uh, doing what you're asking is actually even more difficult than following the madhab. 
right? So doing the, what you're asking requires that you're going to be an imam that's mujtahid. Someone who reaches the highest caliber of ilm and knowledge where you can assess what makes one evidence stronger and one evidence weaker. That's a very complicated thing. You might as well become Sheikh al-Islam in the process, right? But um, uh, uh, the, the more easy thing to say in this regard is if you're someone who really, you know, look, I want to be a good Muslim and I'm not necessarily invested in learning a whole lot about Islam, but I just want to know what I need to do, that's, that's all good. It's fine. That's okay. Then your madhab is the madhab of the one you ask. You don't need to follow a madhab per se in the sense that I am going to learn the ins and outs of what this school says. I'm just going to go to Sheikh Fulan who is my local imam and he's going to be the one who directs me on how to deal with things in my life. You can do that. They say, Al-Ammi la madhhab la. The lay person doesn't have a madhab. His madhab is the madhab of his mufti. That's okay. But if you're someone who really wants to be serious about learning, then to follow a structure in your education is much more meaning for you, meaningful for you um, than jumping around and uh, searching fatwa websites for answers. How do you forgive someone who oppresses others close to you but treats you better? Advise them to stop oppressing others that are close to you. Um, uh, so this is a... I, I, that's a really tough question because there would have to be so much more understood. That's a very... Uh, th there's a lot implied in that question. Um, this, the implication is that this is a very manipulative person that you're dealing with. The implication is that this is a very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Duplicitous, potentially, person that you're dealing with. Um, it's possible the person wants something out of you. There's a, there's a lot implied by the question. It's not easy to answer. Uh, but if, if it's a straightforward thing, like by and large, this is a great person, but they seem to mistreat people here and there, uh, then advise them. But the words being used, they oppress others, but they treat me well, that suggests, that suggests this is maybe a narcissist who's self-serving, and they're just being nice to you because they see that they can get something out of you. In that case, I would say be very careful and wary about the person. Keep them at arm's length. Because someone who oppresses someone else today will oppress you tomorrow. Right? So a, a very common manifestation of this is that if you find someone, if you meet someone, and that person, every time they speak to you, they're backbiting someone else, Know for sure they backbite you when they're sitting with other people. Right? Those people are, it's rare that they do it to one person and not another. It's very, very rare. If someone's a backbiter, if someone puts people down, if they condescend with you, they probably do it with other people as well. And if they don't do it to you and they really are protective of you, they're tribal in some way or another and they're grooming you to be tribal too. And they're expecting you to be tribal too. So this, there's so much implied by the question that would tell me this person, while they seem nice to you, are probably being either manipulative or harmful to you. So I would be at arm's length and maybe try to extract myself from the scenario if I'm not able to actually advise them in any way. You want to add anything? What is the best way to prepare for Ramadan to make the most out of it? Uh, good question. Um, uh, I guess I'll start answering that one. But, uh, uh, you know, just a reminder, subhanAllah, we're getting very, very, very close to Ramadan. Uh, Ramadan spirits are starting to be kindled. Uh, it is a month and a half away, officially. And um, 
you know, before we know it, the blessed month is going to be at our doorsteps. So, Allahumma balighna Ramadan, Allahumma anna ala siyamah wa ala qiyamah wa taqabbalhu minna. Allahumma ameen. Uh, one of the ways to prepare for it is to continue to remind yourself of it with this dua every single day. This is something the companions did. They would prepare for Ramadan months in advance by praying, Oh Allah, allow us to witness Ramadan. And they would pray months afterwards, praying that Allah accepts from them Ramadan. That's one thing, getting in the Ramadan mindset. Um, the month that we're in is actually referred to by the scholars of the past as the month of planting the seeds, right? Shahru Rajab, Shahru Zarr. And then we have after that, Sha'ban uh, is the Shahru Tell Zarr. It is the month of uh, tilling and um, watering those seeds. And then we have Ramadan is the month of the harvest, right? So actually, I, you're asking a very good question. Right now, we should be preparing for Ramadan because Ramadan is supposed to be the end product, the harvest, right? Uh, if I don't prepare for Ramadan before it sets in, then half the month is going to be wasted in adjustments uh, by the time uh, I start in the beginning of the month. Uh, so what can you possibly do? There are so many things you could possibly do for uh, preparing for Ramadan. One of them is to try to um, figure out ways to build a meaningful relationship with the Qur'an. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest ways you could do that is to learn about this book and learn about how to access it. Uh, listen to things about the Qur'an. Uh, listen to how it could be this meaningful presence in your life, right? Um, Ramadan is a month of great spirituality. I need to develop this ability to have a spiritual sense in my day-to-day -day affairs. And that starts with something that's small but consistent every single day. Have something, a fixture in your day that... Um, uh, it gives you a spiritual boost, something. Figure out something that could be your, your daily spiritual boost uh, and keep it small but consistent. Uh, there's a lot more, and inshallah, in the coming months, we're going to talk, uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk a lot about that, but that's what I would say. Uh, I, I would, uh, I'll add a little bit more. Um, I'll give a very structured suggestion. All right. If you have not been fasting since last Ramadan, start by choosing either Monday or Thursday of every week to fast. Preferably both, just to get yourself and your body ready. Some people I've noticed, if you're not someone who fasts regularly outside of Ramadan, one of the struggles you have is as soon as you get into Ramadan, you're just sort of dealing with the new experience again of fasting. So start to get yourself used to that. Get that out of the way. All right, number two, I would start... Once a week, if you don't already pray Qiyam regularly, at least once a week, do a couple rak'at of Qiyam. Either here at the masjid or at home. Right, stand up, even if there's small rak'at, just force yourself to do something outside of the norm of the salah that you normally do. And uh, number three, I would begin to read a certain amount of the Qur'an every day if I'm not already reading a certain amount of the Qur'an every day, even if it's small. And if you're doing it, increase it. So if you're not reading anything, do a page or less. If you're already reading, add a page or more. But start to do it now. That's what planting the seed means. I'm going to start to actually prepare my body, my mind, for the extra rigor that I want in Ramadan. And then the last thing that I would say is, if you can, come to the class on Sunday nights with Sheikh Hussein. Being in person for a class, I know we're all used to the comfort now. Everything is online, alhamdulillah. There is something different to being in a space with a scholar and learning. 
Come to the Sunday night class, the parables of the Qur'an. Open your heart and start to try to delve into some of the meanings of the Qur'an. If you cannot make that one, there are hundreds, literally hundreds, of solid um, a video series online going into specific surah. You can choose one of the surahs from Juz Ahmed. It doesn't have to be a long one. They're only an hour or two long. And go through the whole thing. But take it seriously. I'm actually going to go through the whole thing. If it takes you four weeks to get through two hours, that's fine. But go through the whole thing. Because doing that with tadabbur, with your heart actually into it, will begin to connect you to the Qur'an far more seriously than uh, just recitation alone. So I would do those four things or five things. I'm not sure how many I said. Um, to start planting the seeds. And then inshallah, next month you'll be able to increase them a little bit and hopefully be fully ready uh, when Ramadan comes, inshallah. Yeah, brother, you had a follow-up question. Uh, uh, you want to take this one, Shaykh? Is there any specific reward for fasting every Monday and Thursday? Uh, you get the reward of sunnah, following the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Prophet ﷺ would fast Mondays and Thursdays. So that's the specific reward, tiba'a uh, sunnah, Allah alam. The fadl of uh, doing something that is mandub and encouraged. So if you're asking about specific reward, a certain number of hasanat or a certain amount of forgiveness, not that I know of. I don't know. Uh, there was also a, um, uh, one of the brothers in the audience, I'm not sure if he wants to remain anonymous or not, but he, he forwarded me a, uh, a beautiful reminder. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a statement from the Sahaba that used to say, that whoever is questioned on the day of judgment, قَدْ halak, That person is destroyed. So just the questioning itself on the day of judgment will be enough of a idab, right? And the ulama, the scholars expand on this a little bit. And they say there's two different uh, ways that you can be dealt with by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment. Um, there's the one of uh, uh, adl and the one of fadl, the one of justice and the one of benevolence or blessing. The one of justice is extremely difficult because you're actually going to be questioned about everything that you did, everything sin that you did, every good deed that you did, all the barakah you were given. That accounting is what's very, very difficult on human beings. None of us are going to be good if we go in that place. And you all know the famous hadith that evidences this. When the man says, I want to get into Jannah on my own accord and Allah takes his eyesight and all of that man's good deeds is not even enough for the eyesight. So there's no way if Allah deals with you purely on like just on accounting, there's no way it's going to be an easy judgment for you. No one will pass it. But the, to be judged with fadl, with Allah's rahman, His blessings and His benevolence, will be far easier on you. Where Allah just overlooks some of the sins. Allah sort of allows you to, it covers your, some of your awrat so it's not exposed on that day. So barakallah feek uh, to the dear brother who uh, shot that reminder. Do you want to say anything to that, Shaykh? Uh, there's yeah. just one thing. Um, uh, yani it's not like a specific reward, but there's a, a hadith... Uh, that tells us some of the wisdom why the Prophet ﷺ would fast Mondays and Thursdays. The Prophet ﷺ said, تُعْرَضُ الْأَعْمَالُ يَوْمِ الْإِثْنَيْنِ وَالْخَمِيسِ فَأُحِبُّ أَنْ يُعْرَضَ عَمَلِي وَأَنَا صائم. Prophet ﷺ said, The actions are presented to Allah on Mondays and Thursdays. And I love for my actions to be presented while I'm fasting. So that's just about the virtue of fasting the day. Not a specific reward. Yeah. Uh, he did also, uh, the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did mention separately just about Mondays that he was born on a Monday. Yeah. Um, and so he likes to fast uh, as a show of shukr uh, on that day. Um, and then there is, I don't know if you said this, Sheikh, I was reading the note when you said it. So if, the sheikh, if I'm just repeating something the Sheikh said, 
you know, doing things just because the Prophet did it is, is actually, in and of itself, is a huge virtue, right? Following the sunnah of the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and connecting yourself to his practice is a beautiful um, approach to ibadah that brings its own blessings uh, in huge ways. Bismillah. Uh, any other? You want to ask? Bismillah. Any direct okay. questions? Yes. Yes, so, so, the, yeah, so our, our, uh, our dear sister is saying that fasting that regularly uh, does also help you fight your desires and grow patience, which is very true. This is why the Rasul Sallallahu especially when it came to young men, he advised if you cannot get married, fast often. This is why he advised that, because it, uh, it curbs, uh, it forces you to curb your desires in ways that nothing else in the world will. Do you want to say anything else? No, that's it. Other than uh, shut off the phone ringer, please. Uh, Bismillah. Okay, we got a hot one, Sheikh. Okay. You ready? Okay. Uh, what is the ruling on being Shia? <laughs> is it actually a part of Islam or are only the Sunnis true Muslims? Um, is it part of Islam? Bismillah. So Shia are many different sects and groups, right? It's important to note this. Uh, uh, Shia are not all the same. There's uh, different beliefs that they have. And um, there's some of these that are closer to uh, Ahl Sunnah, uh, like the Zaydi Shia uh, that you will find in Yemen. Uh, they have minor differences between them and uh, Ahl Sunnah. Uh, we do definitely believe that it's an um, uh, it's an aberrant sect. A sect they have uh, uh, beliefs that um, uh, you know are rooted in innovation and bid'ah. And um, we uh, do not remove them from the folds of Islam unless we see something clear cut. And that this is something very important. We don't do wholesale takfir. Doing takfir and saying someone is not a Muslim is a very, very serious thing. It should not be very loose on uh, my tongue, right? Uh, so this is an important thing that I'd say to the questioner. The default is that Anyone who faces our direction of prayer uh, uh, We don't uh, say someone who commits a sin is out of Islam Rather we look at i'tiqad and beliefs And this is something that needs to be assessed case by case Individually uh, You might find someone who uh, ascribes to a certain sect and belief Just by virtue of their upbringing And they have no idea of the extents of the original teachings of this belief. They have no idea to the extent of which it is at. Um, but if it is found that they are from ghulat shia uh, those extreme sects of Shia that have um, uh, beliefs that are very heretical, then in this case it is possible for them to be outside of the folds of Islam. Uh, that's what I would say to that question. So don't do wholesale takfir. And uh, don't worry about someone else, whether they're Muslim or not, to begin with. Leave that to people of knowledge. Um, uh, rather, uh, for your personal belief, avoid that. Oh, what's up, Sazud uh, One? No, there's someone is, I think, parked in a way that's blocking um, the the other cars back here. Yeah. So if if you're not parked in a regular parking spot in the parking lot, uh, please move your car uh, so that others can get out. Exactly. Yeah, live at a fix. I'm
Okay. I, I, I will say one thing to uh, just to add some color to Sheikh Osama's response. Uh, you know, I, w I went, my entire um, pre-college schooling was in the Ghazali school system from kindergarten up until uh, senior year in high school. Um, all of my years from junior high until I graduated, there were two uh, young men in my class who I only found out much later in life uh, were Shia. Uh, but they were with me the entire time. And we had, we had no clue that they were any different from us. And my father grew up in Iraq um, before Iraq was destroyed. And my father would say to me, we grew up and we would not know who was Shi'i and who was it. It was not a thing. Like this, was, like this idea that the U.S. has sort of, and the Western governments have sort of spread about the Muslim world, that it's always been this like divisive, hated, hateful relationship, that is not true. There have been, there's a long history where between people who identify as Sunni and Shia, there was a lot of love, there was neighborliness, there was togetherness. Now that's not to undermine that there are some massive oppressive regimes that exist right now that have used these divisions to sow discord among their people so that they can keep their power in certain ways. And so yes, that specific thing is hated. That specific thing. People using one group against another, that is evil and hated. And there are some minorities who like they've built their entire identity around this. And so you'll find, so that's why you'll find sometimes um, some of our brothers and sisters from certain lands in the Middle East in specific, they'll speak with such uh, anger in their hearts and in their tones. And they'll use generic language like Shia. What they're really speaking about are that group who've identified as Shia and have used that identity to destroy our country. And so don't, like, I don't want anyone to mix this stuff. Like, when, if you're an American and you've never really seen what it's like in that part of the world, you can easily sort of fall into these misunderstandings about how the two sides have often dealt with one another. Do you want to say anything more? Okay. Bismillah. Uh, do you have to make up years of past salah if you just recently started praying? Um, do you have to make up years of past salah if you've just recently started praying? Um, well, if you weren't praying... Uh, because you weren't Muslim before, then the answer is, of course, you don't have to make up those past years. Uh, because as the Prophet says, Islam erases everything that was before it. But if you weren't praying because you were away from Allah and now you've repented and you want to um, build a connection with your salah, with your deen, then the answer to this question is, according to most scholars, you must make up those prayers uh, but you have time to make them up. And what I would tell the questioner is, estimate how much you think you have to make up over the years. How many years were you required to pray that you actually did not pray? Um, is it one year? Is it five years? Is it ten years? Is it a lifetime? Right? Uh, and instead of praying sunnah prayers, pray qada. And with time, you will find that you'll be able to make up a substantial amount of those years. If, for example, if you make up one prayer with every prayer that you make, like I'll pray two Fard Fajr and two Fard Fajr Qada, for example, and if you do this, to, I'm going to pray four Rak'ahs Fard Dhuhr and four Rak'ahs Qada of Dhuhr, and so on and so forth. If you do this with every prayer, with every year you pray, you're going to be making up a year you missed. And so with time, if you're someone who's even missed, up, missed 10 years of prayer, within the next 10 years, 
I will be able to make up 10 years of missed prayers. And I put this in my heart as my intention, part of my repentance. I'm making it right with Allah Azza wa Jal. And the, there's a hadith that say to this effect, The debt that is due to Allah Azza wa Jal is most deserving of being repaid. I should repay this. And it's the opinion that makes the most sense. It's the opinion of the vast majority of scholars. If someone misses Fajr, uh, this coming morning because they overslept, right? Uh, is that, are they excused? They're excused, right? They were sleeping. They didn't intentionally miss the prayer uh, and they wake up after sunrise. What are we going to tell this person to do? Do qada al-fajr. So how could it possibly make sense that I'm going to tell someone who was excused for missing a prayer, you have to make it up. And then I'm going to tell someone who was not excused for missing years of prayers, you don't have to make it up. That doesn't make sense, Right? There is another opinion that says you don't make it up, but this is the ba- on the basis of what? If you don't pray, you're not Muslim. So if you don't pray, you're, that's the opinion that's held by some. Uh, it's a strict opinion. If you don't pray, you're not Muslim. There's an opinion that says that. It's within the four schools. If you're okay with considering yourself having not been Muslim, a disbeliever, for years on end, then go ahead, follow that opinion. It's up to you. Yeah. I, I would say this. I, I think the sheikh is being a little bit cheek and tongue with that last comment. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, look, I know it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult proposition. And like we get this question, like I've heard uh, Sheikh Hussam and Sheikh Yasser get asked this question. I, I can't even, it's, it's been more than a hundred times I've heard this question be asked. And it gives me hope. It actually gives me hope because it means so many people are coming back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alhamdulillah. The fact that you're asking this question is a beautiful sign. And someone who has enough love of Allah in their hearts and enough concern for Allah's rida in their hearts that they are willing to go through that process of actually calculating how many salahs do I owe Allah and then putting a plan in place. That action, that action, the impact that it has on your heart is massive. It's not small. So like I've seen people in private settings where they ask this, especially Sheikh Yasser when I'm with him, where like, well, what if I like recant Islam right now and take my shahada again, right? And it's like, you know, the spirit is wrong there. The spirit is actually wrong, right? Like the, the whole spirit is, I love Allah. I want to repent to Allah. This is a clear-cut sign that you've repented to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not easy. It's difficult. But that difficulty actually elevates you with Allah. And it's going to purify your heart and beautify your characters in ways I don't think you're thinking of right now. So go through it, inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will show you the barakah in your life. There's going to be some difficulty, but there's going to be a lot of ease that comes along with it, inshallah. Absolutely. Uh, just one more thing. Uh, uh, from a fiqh standpoint, uh, recanting Islam <laughs> won't help you here, by the way. Uh, you know, if someone was to actually leave the folds of Islam, like they were Muslim and then they were to apostate for years, and now they became Muslim again, everything they missed in those years of apostasy is still actually on record. They still owe it, right? Um, uh, so recanting Islam doesn't help in this regard. But again, it's all part of the process of tawbah. It'll help you, it'll soothe you, it'll fulfill you if you do it as realizing that, you know what, this is part of me renewing my sense of tawbah and repentance to Allah every day. That's what I would say. And there's some people who have their hand up. Yeah, go ahead, brother. Uh, when you reach the age of... Age of uh, uh, puberty, adolescence, uh, that's basically what, what actually defines it as uh, for, for, for sisters is having the monthly cycle. 
for brothers, it is when uh, sexual fluid is released from the body, uh, whether that's through a nocturnal emission or something else. Uh, when sexual fluid is released from the body, that's when bulugh starts. If none of that happens, then by the age of 15. Yeah, there was a hand up here too. Oh, no. to the, I saw the brother first and then I'll come to you, inshallah. Go ahead. Yeah, you could do as many as you want. This is just to not overburden people, right? Because imagine when you look at it like I have to make up 10 years of prayer, it's a very momentous task. You're talking about um, uh, like what? Thousands of prayers maybe. Uh, uh, so it's, it's a lot of prayers. It's, uh, but just to make it easier and more attainable, that's why we say it like that. When Ramadan comes, you get a big boost. Every time the imam prays uh, tar taraweeh, you can have the intention of qada. No problem. You can have an intention that's different than your imam. Uh, even instead of praying tahajjud, you can have the intention of qada. Uh, instead of, don't pray sunnah prayers until you, uh, you know, pay what's due to you. And again, like I said, this is only after Islam. Before Islam, you don't even have to think about making up those prayers. Allah yeah. I have a sister here and then I'll come back to you. Go ahead, sister. A sister in the back, yeah. Uh, say the question one more time. Uh, so she's asking if you pray the two sunnah before Fajr, then you pray Fajr, can you pray two more qada after Fajr? I think what she's referencing is she's heard people tell her you can't pray after Fajr, after Duha, yeah, you can't yeah. pray. Uh, no, you, uh, yeah. you could pray that, you could do that. But I, what I would say is don't pray the two sunnahs before Fajr. Have the intention of qada with everything that you pray. Don't, don't have the intention for sunnah. That's like someone wanting to give uh, sadaqah when they owe people debt. Like, why are you giving sadaqah? If you have extra money, pay off your debt, right? Don't give charities, right? So it's the same idea. Uh, but if you, if you were to do that, is that okay to pray f uh, the qada of fajr after you pray fard al-fajr? No problem. Because that, that doesn't fall under what's prohibited during that time. Allah There was a question here too. Oh, that's true. I'm sorry. I'll come right back to you. Go ahead, sister. Estimate. Yeah, estimate to the best of your knowledge. If it was that you were really only missing Fajr uh, because like, you would like, oversleep and then you were just a little bit negligent in making it up, then it makes it easier for you. Every, uh, with every fard, instead of praying at sunnah, just pray qada of Fajr. Until you reach to the point where you think that you've covered your, your account, then that would be sufficient for you. That, that's that's a hundred thousand in reward, but it's not it, some people you're right Some people actually do this that they would have not prayed for a lifetime And they go to Mecca with the intention that it's going to wipe out a hundred thousand prayers that I was supposed to do for the past 50 years of living um, uh, The answer is of course not that how, how on earth would that be two rakahs wipe out a lifetime? Yani, but ish this is talking about the reward that you can gain for praying in those spaces is unlike the reward anywhere else. 
But what is fard is fard and what is obligatory is obligatory. Nothing can make up an obligation except making it up. Waqt um, al-Sahar, the, the last part of the night is of course the best time to pray Qiyam. Uh, it is the last third of the night. The Prophet ﷺ told us that uh, Allah Azza wa Jal calls out to his servants at that hour, is there anyone seeking forgiveness that I may forgive them? Is there anyone asking that I may answer them? And so on and so forth. That's the best time to pray, of course. Uh, but if you can't make that time, then pray what you can. Allah yeah, and I, I would also say, I, don't know, I mean, uh, this is not just for, for you. Maybe you're uh, uh, a person of tahajjud, inshallah. But uh, if you have never done it, it's good to make that a goal. But it's a very high bar to start with. So waking up pre-fajr is actually the hardest form of qiyam. It's the best, but it's also the hardest. So set it as a goal, try. But if you're really starting out, just do two rak'ahs after Salat al-Isha as qiyam. And then build from there. And little by little, inshallah, you can get to the point where you're praying to Hajjud very regularly because it is its own challenge, inshallah. I had the hand up here and then I'll come back to you, inshallah. Go ahead, brother. Ammi. Sumu tasahu, is it? It's not an authentic hadith, but its meaning is correct. Of course, uh, uh, you know. Fasting helps with sahat al-badan, yani the health of the body. But it's not an authentic hadith. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, the brother was first, and then I'll come back to the sister. Go ahead. No. Uh, yeah. Question was for it to count for night prayers, the hajjud. Do I have to sleep? The answer is no. Yeah. It's about the timing. You're, you leave your with it after what? Sorry? She's saying the hadith about uh, fasting ayam al-abyad um, and so on lists as one of the virtuous acts is sleeping after witr. And so she's saying I understood that you leave witr until the end. So how do you sort of connect the two. Um, uh, what's the hadith about fasting the white days again? I, I don't know this hadith, but she said fasting a yam al and Okay, uh, maybe you could share the hadith with me later on. I don't recall it. Uh, but, um, but in general, uh, the Prophet ﷺ advised us to make the last prayer that we do of the night with it. Uh, but if we can't, or say if I don't know if I'll wake up or not, do it before you sleep. 
and if you end up waking up, then pray. It's fine to pray after Witr. It's a recommendation to leave Witr to the very end. But if you do Witr, you could continue praying after it without a problem. Um, we actually have an example among the companions that Umar radiallahu anhu would do Witr before he sleeps. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would do Witr uh, at the very end of the night. So it's, it's fine to do either way. Allah uh, Um, can you repeat the question? Yeah, so the question is, um, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already knows everything that is going to come to pass, then why would opinions change over time? Why would fiqhi opinions change over time? Shouldn't, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the sister's question, shouldn't Allah had already sort of revealed the knowledge that would have been perfect for all of time so that we wouldn't have to change these rulings? That's, that's the question that the sister's asking. Yeah, uh, So they say that Al-Qiyas uh, or analogy is Alat al-Ijtihad. It is the tool of um, uh, scholarly discretion in addressing religious issues. And basically what Qiyas is or analogy is, is using that which was addressed to address that which has not been addressed. Uh, it's not due to a deficiency with Allah Azza wa Jal. It's due to the lack of need at the time revelation was delivered. Uh, for those specific things. There is this principle that they say, النصوص متناهية والوقائع غير متناهية The source texts will always have a finite number, but the possibilities in people's lives are endless. So that's why there needed to be principles that govern everything that may be under uh, certain set rules, right? Uh, so... Uh, and in fact, this is one of the dynamic things in Sharia. This is one of the dynamic things in Sharia that Allah Azza wa Jal gave an avenue for the Islamic law and this religion to be carried by generations after revelation was long gone and long done, right? Um, so, in fact, this is this was the most profound way to do it, uh, you know. And again, because like just think about it, it's not that Allah doesn't know the possibilities, but can you just imagine trying to tell someone in 7th century Arabia uh, um, there's going to come these things called airplanes and it's going to make people fly tens of thousands of feet in the air and the ruling of praying on this airplane is X, Y, Z. Would that make any sense? You know, the, you know it, 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 it actually defeats the purpose of guidance. In fact, the Quran as a constitution is so profound because it is able to deliver concise guidance with utmost clarity that gives people a way to live by, right? So, wallah, that's how I would address that. Uh, to get slightly more philosophical, I'm going to piggyback on the Sheikh's uh, last point there. Um, I, I think the question actually leads to a beautiful reflection on what is it that Allah wants out of humanity, right? Um, in Hadith Jibreel, one of the foundational ahadith of this religion, one of the things 
Sayyidina Jibreel asked Sayyidina Muhammad وسلم, about is a sign of the Day of Judgment. And the commentary in this hadith talk about how Allah was teaching us that we should always be engaged with the world around us. You should always be looking at the signs around you. You should always be looking at the circumstances, how life is changing, how human life is changing. The fact that Allah left the door open and specifically called upon humanity that you're going to have to constantly engage with the circumstances that I bring into reality and determine what is moral tells you what Allah wants from humanity. Allah is not asking us to be robots. He's not asking us to be copycats. He's expecting there's going to be a wide range of personalities. There's going to be a wide range of possibilities for everybody in their life. And I want you to actually go through this engagement because a part of the beauty of the creation of a human being is that Allah gave you this will and this knowledge that very few other creations have. The angels don't have it. Any other creation that we know of other than the jinn don't have it. We are unique, us and the jinn, with the fact that Allah gave us the ability to know knowledge, to learn it, to pass it on, and to actually have a will to determine things in this life. So Allah left the door open because that's what He expects of us as a creation. He's not expecting us to be automatons. We just sort of copy one another. So I think the question is actually very profound from a philosophical perspective. Allah wasn't trying to close the door and say, everyone live like the Prophet in 7th century. He was trying to say, here is your moral exemplar. Now engage the world. Engage the circumstances I'm going to give you and let me see what you're going to do. Right, so that's what Allah wants from us on a wide scale, inshallah. Let me come back to the brother. Oh, there was a brother here who had a... Did I... There's a question. Was that a phantom brother? Maybe. Go ahead, sister. What is the ruling on wearing a perfume slash musk? Um, is, is musk allowed because it's naturally derived where others are not? Or is there any limitation to wearing perfume? For, for women, I assume. Um, the answer is, uh, if you're going to be in a mixed gender setting or a public setting, uh, then this would be prohibited in Islam. Uh, it makes no difference whether it's from natural sources or not. Uh, if it's not a mixed gender setting, uh, then there would be no issue with it. Or if it's within the, um, within the space of your home or by a friend's house or something like that, th there's no problem with that at all. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll do one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The difference between what? Being in a gender mixed and a gender neutral setting. Why uh, is there one ruling for one and not for the other? Well, so the whole reason, so we spoke about this concept earlier. It's called sedderaer, and uh, it's a prohibition of means that which leads to something prohibited. Uh, if something uh, is re uh, something is substantial enough to lead to fitna, then it would gain that ruling. And the Prophet Sallallahu cited uh, musk or scents as uh, a specific example as carrying that possibility. And what fitna means is attraction. The reason why people wear these uh, scents uh, is because, you know, they're attracting in nature. They're by nature. They're attracting. Everyone can see that in them. Uh, whether it's, you know, because it makes me feel good or, uh, you know, refreshed or whatever it is. Uh, but there is this attracting sense to it. And uh, in a mixed gender setting, Islam prohibits us from pr pursuing that with each other. There would be certain things for brothers that are prohibited too in that vein. But this is 
from bab just as like for example me being isolated in a room with another sister or another brother if I'm a sister would be something that's prohibited because a prohibition of means it's not to say that well I can't say well I'll be an adult and we'll be very serious and I won't cross any boundaries I could possibly get away with that I could possibly adhere to that uh, but Islam prohibits that from the get-go as a prohibition of means so that it does not lead to something else. And they say, as they say uh, here, well, say some, someone might say, well, that's not me. I'm serious. I, I know my boundaries. This, this, and that. Uh, uh, but Islam does not give uh, rulings for special circumstance like that. Uh, they say, We have some guy or some sister who has this very high level of discipline where they would not cross their boundaries, we're not going to give a special ruling for that person. It's going to be a general rule that Islam prohibits us from crossing certain boundaries. The hadith that I'm speaking about specifically is the Prophet ﷺ cites that there will be those from his ummah, from the females of his ummah, um, who wear um, uh, scents in public, and the Prophet ﷺ said about them, Wallahi, they will not smell the scent of paradise. And that, so that because the Prophet ﷺ said that, we cannot go near this type of uh, behavior. Wallahu yeah, does, does the uh, I'm going to ask a question I'm sure it's coming up in some of the sisters' minds. Does that hadith lead our ulama to determine that beyond perfume and musk, say a, a deodorant or a shampoo or something or a detergent that leaves a strong pleasant scent on a person is also prohibited? Look, this is a very vast door. Like yeah. There could be a special class about this. And again, like I said, sometimes when you're talking about issues relating to genders, it makes people extra sensitive because we are in uh, uh, a, a society where it, gender issues are very polarizing right? in the modern day. So just as we have certain boundaries for sisters, there's also certain boundaries for brothers. If a brother wants to present himself in a way that is very, um, uh, what's the word, uh, very, very inappropriate, that's uh, attracting to the opposite gender, uh, then this behavior, we would say it is haram for you, O oh brother, to present yourself in a mixed gender setter in this light if because it is leading to fitna. You need to change, even if you're covering your aura. This behavior, if leading to this word, keyword fitna, and that is attraction, attraction between the genders that is illicit, uh, then this behavior would be prohibited. Wallahu alam. Yeah, so relax with the muscle teeth. Yeah, yeah. Relax, relax with, with the, the muscle teeth. <laughs> uh, okay, we're, look, I'm only going to take a few more live questions. Whoever has their hand up now, your live question will get in, then we have to close. It's getting kind of late. Okay. Jazakumullah khair. I'm going to start with uh, the sister here. Yes. Yes. So look, use your best judgment uh, with things. There may remain a certain faint smell. Like if I know I'm about to leave the house uh, in uh, 15 minutes and I go spray myself like 10 times with, well, what do I expect, right? But if it is something that, you know, was reasonably done, and there may be a faint smell, or like when you're speaking about deodorant, then we're, you know, we should not be some people who end up having um, uh, intrusive thoughts about things. Just be reasonable. Uh, if it's some, you know, use your best judgment. If it is something 
that if I'm going out with clear scent that is influencing my surroundings, then this is where it would apply. But if I'm wearing something that it, the scent of it would very like, if I do even have any scent, would not extend beyond my personal private space, use your best judgment, right? It's a, you know, don't have intrusive thoughts about it. That's what I would say. Wallahu alam. Uh, who else had the sister with the green hijab? Yeah. Yes, it doesn't affect your prayers. I'm going to do the sister in the back, then I'm coming to the brothers who are left, inshallah. Yeah. So what socks can you wipe over in wudu, Sheikh? Uh, what socks can you wipe over in wudu? Um... Uh, well, you're on the fiqh of salat chat, so if you, I answered this question. <laughs> he I answered think it in, in detail week, like yeah. a week ago. Um, so, yeah. uh, so basically, long story short, there's a legitimate opinion that says you can wipe on cotton socks. Uh, it is the opinion of the Hanbali school. The other three schools say that you shouldn't um, because they have more stringent criteria for something, for the foot gear that you could wipe on. Um, in our group, <laughs> um, in our group, uh, there was someone who shared a type of sock uh, that has a special patent to it. Uh, you know, that is like uh, a halal sock, I guess I'm you could say. wearing it right now, Shay. You're wearing it right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go, wudu gear. Uh, uh, you know, uh, if you have the capacity to get something like that and this ruling matters to you, then great. Um, it would be good to do that. But uh, I caution you, uh, they will most likely be the most expensive socks you ever buy because I think they're like 30 bucks a pair. Um, uh, You'd be uh, shocked. I, I mean, some of the socks I see brothers wearing these days are pretty expensive. So I don't know if they're the most expensive. Really? Yeah, There's yeah, yeah. socks yeah. more than 30? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, the style is style. Man, you gotta pay for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Apparently, uh, yeah. anyway, I don't know where people shop yeah. at. But, uh, huh? So, yeah. yeah. So if you get those socks, you're good to go. Uh, if you want the cotton socks, there's a madhab that allows it. Uh, and then now here you got to use your judgment, right? If I want to be precautious and I'm young and healthy and able and I'm not someone who's plagued with intrusive thoughts or I don't have OCD, then go ahead, wash your feet and be more precautious. If you're someone who knows from themselves that you're plagued with a lot of intrusive thoughts, please, please, we have a lot of people who struggle with wudu and struggle with prayers. Please, 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 I urge you, Islam doesn't want this from you. If you're that person who's spending 20 minutes or 30 minutes in the bathroom trying to make wudu, I urge you and beg you. Uh, that, is, that has gone from becoming uh, an act of worship to becoming uh, something that needs to be treated medically. It's no longer an act of worship if it's taking you that long to do, right? So please, please don't do that. Islam would never expect from you to go through, uh, you know, bouts of 20-minute wudu for every single salah. Uh, and not at all. If it gets to that point, please just follow the easiest opinion that's out there and don't ever second guess yourself. Just do it as you know it. You've been making wudu probably for uh, most of your life. You're good to go. Don't even think about it. That's what I tell people who struggle with this. Don't even think about it twice. Just do it and Allah will accept, from, ex accept it from you. Bidnillahi ta'ala. I saw three brothers. Uh, so I'll start with you, dear brother, and then you had one too, right? 
Not you. So it was you, you. Was there a third one that had their hand up? Just those two? Khalas, inshallah. Go ahead. What is a jinn? Uh, is this the first time you heard that word when I said it? Or are you asking because you've heard it from it before? Okay. No, no, because I would answer the question very differently depending, right? So if it's the first time you heard it, I'll just give a basic definition. Uh, so the jinn are a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he told us about um, that also have the ability to uh, make decisions morally and justly and so on. Um, they are created, their base cre our base creation is the earth, uh, their base creation is the fire. Um, and so they, they uh, we do know a little bit more about them, like they can travel at fast speeds, uh, they can see us when we cannot see them. Uh, so to us they are part of the unseen, but we're not a part of the unseen to them. And there are groups of the jinn that are Muslims, that follow Muhammad wasallam. There were groups of the jinn at the time of Muhammad wasallam that followed Musa wasallam. And there are groups among them that are uh, not righteous and uh, are wicked. And the shaitan is from the jinn. Iblis, the shaitan, the primary shaitan, is from the jinn. He is not from humanity. There are shayateen of human beings. Like there are human beings that are categorized as being iblisi. They are shaitanic, they are satanic. Uh, but the primary shaitan is a jinn. Anything you want to add to that shaitan? No. Any follow-up questions? I answer your question? We're good? Okay. It's all you, Sheikh. <laughs> so the question is, can you share some wisdom on why there's a ruling against women wearing perfume in a mixed-gender setting, but not men? Yeah, JazakAllah uh, Khair. I know it's one of those complicated things. Uh, uh, and, and look, I, I urge you, there's this concept in Aqidah that we adhere to and we believe in. And that is this tahseen and taqbih are shar'iyan, deeming what is pleasant and deeming what is wicked. Who decides for it? The types of questions that you could ask in this vein are endless, right? Uh, I'll give you another example that the Quran gives, right? Well, why prohibit alcohol fundamentally when um, there are many examples of people who can drink responsibly? Why prohibit it at its core when you could say, well, don't uh, drink it in excess, or don't drink it and drive. Or don't drink it and make decisions. Um, you know, just, you know, so, so the answer to this is I as a believer can understand things with the mind Allah Azza wa Jal gave me in a very variable way. I'll walk away with one conclusion, you'll walk away with another, you'll walk away with another. The minds, our minds operate in different ways, right? But there's this unifying factor for all of us here as believers. And that is, I trust Allah's judgment, the Prophet ﷺ's judgment as reigning supreme for what is beneficial and good for me in my life. Whether that will apply in all situations or not. Um, that's the, the sort of preamble to this question. Now, the extension to this is, you will find certain ahkam in sharia that have been made easy for men and certain ahkam and sharia that have been made easy for women, right? An example of that 
But Allah obligated men to do it. So this is what we need to temper our understandings with. Um, the same thing with the idea of imama. Uh, it as an act of worship, it and as it as an act of worship is something um, uh, that uh, uh, that I learn about through the prophetic example, and we know through the prophetic example that. Uh, he وسلم, set forth that a man could lead a mixed gender con- a man could lead a mixed gender congregation and a woman should not and a woman could lead an all women's congregation uh, uh, without any problem uh, and so that's that's another example that you'll find great contra- controversy around when you use our minds to assess and reflect on it now when it comes to the issue of perfume and scents as well you will find that, like I said, there's this issue of fitna that we're considering. Islam in general prohibits both genders from engaging in settings that will lead to the detriment of either one, right? So mixed gender settings are not something that's highly encouraged in our deen, especially when it's done in an irresponsible way, right? So this idea of having, for example, a wedding that is mixed with dancing and singing, and uh, you know, dressing our finest, and uh, you know, exposing ourselves—is that something that's prohibited only on women? No, of course not. It's prohibited on men and women. Is lowering gaze something that is expected from men only? No, it's not. It's actually expected from both. Many people might think the ruling of lowering the gaze is is a guy thing. Guys need to lower their gaze. Women don't need to lower their gaze. <laughs> of course, that's not the case, right? So, so again, you will find that. Um, it, you know, in the public space, uh, that Allah Azza wa Jal will generally guide uh, the Islam generally guides genders not to mix in an irresponsible way, and you will find in uh, um, a men-only setting there is flexibility in the way that I present and engage, and in a women's-only setting, as a woman, there is flexibility and ease in the way I can interact. When it is mixed, Allah Azza wa Jal knows our nufus and the boundaries that we could possibly cross as individuals. You will find that sexual harassment is more prevalent from men than it is from women. Am I wrong? Right? Are men more sexually harassed than women? Answer? If anyone says yes to that, I don't know what planet you're living on. Right? I don't know what planet you're living on if you think that men are more sexually harassed than women. There is something there that teaches us about our design and our humanity. That contributes to this type of ruling. You know, is it more common? And I'm going to just be a little bit you know, um, direct with this. Like, Is it more common for a man to be raped or a woman to be raped? Answer the question. Obviously. Right? The answer is obvious. So there's something about our design in which Allah Azza wa Jal wants there to be clear boundary that certain lines are not crossed. 
And usually when it comes to sexual matters, you will find the aggressor is the man more than the woman. The man is usually the aggressor in sexual issues, right? Uh, even though you might find examples to the contrary that are rare, like for example, um, uh, a teacher with young boys or something to that effect or something like that. But usually you will find it that it is the opposite. So because of this, more was put into making sure that this boundary of halal and haram for the betterment of both, right? So don't misunderstand me. God didn't say that it was prohibited for women to do this because men can't control themselves. No, that's not what it is, right? The same thing I say about hijab. Hijab is not, I'm not, a sister doesn't wear hijab because men won't be able to control themselves. That's a foolish way to speak about hijab. But Islam teaches us to recognize the two-way influence between the individual and society, right? And in this understanding of this two-way influence, I need to understand that there are certain things that Islam has mandated for women. If I'm a woman, I need to understand this to preserve me and my integrity. And certain things that Allah mandated for me as a man to preserve me and my integrity. That's the center of this discussion. It is not about uh, this um, chauvinist or... Um, uh, what, are the, what are the words? Give me the nice adjectives that I could say here. Uh, it's not about this uh, sexist. Uh, sexist approach, this, uh, or it's not about this uh, misogynistic approach that Islam has towards women. It's not about this subjugating approach that Islam has towards women. No, not, it's not because uh, Islam promotes a patriarchy. It's not that at all. That is coming from the lingo and language of a society that uh, is diseased and afflicted with this polarized discourse on genders and gender roles. That's what I would say to that. Anyway, that was a really long answer. I'm sorry for talking about that. We love it when the fire comes. Alhamdulillah. Is there anything you have to add? No, you were thorough, Sheikh. I'm sorry. There, I know there are two other hands up, but I said I was only going to get the people who put their hands up earlier. So I got through them all. Uh, you can come up if you want to ask a question, but I do have to let everyone go. I think people are pretty tired, inshallah. Uh, so I'm just going to ask the Sheikh to close us out with a brief dua, inshallah.